The Daily Rios Digest, November 21st, 2021. Movie Monday. When I can't sleep, I'm definitely one of those people that can easily get sucked into a YouTube rabbit hole. And for a few nights last week, that rabbit hole was me watching scenes from the movie Moneyball. Now, I'm not a sports person, but I've come to realize that I am a true sports movie person. True in quotes, right? Um, especially with something like Moneyball, where there is great dialogue, great acting. It's oddly emotional, especially when you consider it's a story about math and baseball. And for those that don't know, Moneyball is a 2011 American biographical film directed by Bennett Miller, written by Stephen Salian and Aaron Sorkin, and the film is based on the 2003 nonfiction book by Michael Lewis, which is an account of the Oakland Athletics baseball team's 2002 season and their general manager Billy Bean's attempts to assemble a competitive team. In the film, Bean is played by Brad Pitt, and his assistant general manager, is uh, Peter Brand, is played by Jonah Hill. They are faced with the franchise's limited budget for players. They build a team of undervalued talent by taking a sophisticated sabermetric, sabermetric approach to scouting and analyzing players. This led to the A's winning a 20-game streak, winning the 2002 American League West, but ultimately losing to the Minnesota Twins in the 2002 American League Division Series. For those that do know, you know that this story changed baseball in one way or another. So, so instead of watching clips, I said, come on, it's on Netflix, just watch the movie again, right? So I did, and then wound up watching some of it, if not most of it, again another night or on the train home from work and it made me think you know the last time I did something like this was with Interstellar where I saw it for the first time and then proceeded to watch it at least two to three more times within a week now I have seen Moneyball before I think I've seen it twice before and just for some reason I was in that rabbit hole and I wa watched the movie at least one maybe one and a half times uh, during the the previous week you could say I got a little obsessed with it, uh, whether it was the dialogue, the build of the movie, the, the way these characters were working towards the goal, the obstacles that they had to deal with, and just really great natural acting and line delivery, especially in the scouting meet meetings, in the arguments, in the conversations with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Notice that Brad Pitt, again, is eating in almost every scene. It's a very smart movie. And it's a smart movie where dialogue is everything. I like listening to characters and actors that know what they're talking about and that have conversations. They listen, they react, they respond. They're not just regurgitating lines, which is what you get in a lot of heavily scripted movies or in most episodic television it's the reason I watch videos of Newsroom 
or True Detective season one or try to watch plays that have really intense dialogue. Um, but yeah, Moneyball, it just kind of hit me this week and I, I wanted to talk about it a little bit because then it made me think of other true, quote unquote, true sports movies that I liked. Um, you know, heavily fictionalized accounts, heightened drama just to create drama, uh, to hook you into the story and to the successes. And, you know, we're watching people win and succeed through adversity. Um, you know, a, a way to prove to others that your way is the way or the character's way or the team's way, etc. This is, again, nothing new. You know, if you like these kind of movies, you understand the feeling um, that I'm feeling. If you're a sports fan, you absolutely understand it, right? And again, I'm not a big sports fan, but I, I do like watching these clips. And there are a lot of times where, where I will watch, you know, um, the 25 best down to the second moments in basketball or football or the craziest passes or something like that. So true sports movies, Moneyball, um, I love Hoosiers. Gene Hackman is so good in that movie. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari, a more recent one, really good acting in that. Battle of the Sexes, A League of Their Own, right? Um, I, Tanya. Again, a lot of this stuff is heavily fictionalized. Um, and then there are ones that aren't necessarily based on real events. Um, things like The Natural, which I think I only just saw within the last five to six years. Um, and then there's some zany ones like Dodgeball right? Just come on. It's a sports movie and it's crazy. I love Creed. Certainly you could put all the Rocky movies in, in, in this category in one way or another. I have not seen 42. I have not seen Chariots of Fire. I have not seen Eight Men Out, um, Remember the Titans. There's a ton of them that I haven't seen. So hearing this list, which, which one are your favorites or is there any movie that I haven't listed that you're like, okay, if you liked Moneyball, if you liked um, uh, Hoosiers, then you have to see so-and-so. You know, I know there's Rudy and a couple other things. Um, and I'm talking sports movies. You know, I, there are certainly a ton of movies that have the same kind of dialogue, that same kind of realism, but that don't deal with sports. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about sports movies. If you have any recommendations, let me know because I want to see them. The robots are going to come for me. Danger, Will Robinson. Maybe the only way to put an end to this is to face the danger. Trailer Tuesday. I don't talk much about trailers. I tend to watch them and then forget about them and try not to obsess over them um, because, you know, I'm pretty good about, I'm pretty good at figuring out things and I just don't want to be spoiled. And I miss the days of going into the movie theater with no knowledge and, and all of that. But anyway, um, there are a few trailers that I've seen and I had a few thoughts on. This isn't going to be a long segment. And some of this stuff might already be out, but um, I, I just kind of made a list and I thought I'll just talk about it here in a, in a new segment, right? I don't think I, I, I remember talking about a trailer, but I never had a segment called Trailer Tuesdays, so 
Um, maybe this will be the beginning of a, a, another Tuesday segment. I would say that if you're someone that doesn't like to know anything about trailers, you probably should skip this segment. Go to the show notes and jump ahead to whatever time the next segment starts because there might be something in here you don't want to hear. Stranger Things Season 4 does make me wonder how much longer we can keep this franchise going. I really liked the first season. I don't remember much about the second season. Third season was okay. Um, watching this trailer, I'm not sure what the hook is outside of more of the same, you know, the teens, the whatever year we're going to place this in, uh, something going on, something larger than the city that they live in with, you know, scientists and military, et cetera, et cetera. I guess I really want to know where does this story end and does it have an ending, um, and, and how much longer do they think they can keep this franchise going, especially when you consider a lot of these actors are getting too old to play the teens that they're playing, and maybe it's time to end the story or shift it somewhere else. Game of Thrones, uh, the, the new series, The House of Dragons, I guess it's called. This is a prequel to Game of Thrones. It's coming to HBO Max. It's based on George R.R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood which is set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones and tells the story of House Targaryen. And the crazy thing is there's only one volume of this series out so far. So again, kind of like Game of Thrones, they're creating a TV show about a series that's still not done in printed form. Bizarre. So here's another series where I'm like, hmm, who are we going to root for? You know, we already know that these people aren't good, so um, I haven't read the novel. I guess I should. Is it going to be too dark? Are we going to really... I, I don't know. It just feels kind of weird, but I get it. They're trying to bank on uh, the popularity of Game of Thrones. There was one line that said, Dreams didn't make us king. Dragons did. And I thought, oh, is that a commentary on Bran? Because... Bran became king because he had a lot of visions, right? He was becoming the three-eyed raven. So this is kind of their way of setting this series apart. So, you know, another series I'm sure I'll watch down the road. Star Trek Discovery Season 4, which has begun. Uh, this feels very alien to me, no pun intended, because I've only seen Season 1. Does it look like Star Trek? I mean, the ships do. Um, but I don't know the characters enough to get invested in, in the trailer, but there were some good things in it. And I have, I have to imagine that, you know, if this was a trailer that someone did for, say, Deep Space Nine, I would be like, oh, right, sure, I get it. You know, you could see where the, the Star Trek-ness comes out. And they're talking about an, an anomaly, and it looks very destructive. Um, it seems like there's going to be a lot of action, but again, it's just a trailer, so... Uh, I saw the trailer and I thought, yeah, dummy, go and catch up on that show. Of course, we have to talk about Spider-Man No Way Home, which dropped today. And uh, this is Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And, you know, we're assuming the Sinister Six. We see Green Goblin and Electro and Doctor Octopus and Sandman and Lizard. So it's the Sinister Six, but we only, we've only seen five uh characters five villains but you know there's a lot of theories going on you know the main theory the one that i immediately thought of as i saw it 
is that I just don't think this is Doctor Strange. The dialogue, the characterization seems off, and if it's not Doctor Strange, if it's someone like, I don't know, Baron Mordo or somebody else, some people are saying it's Mysterio, um, if it's not Doctor Strange, then maybe uh, the sixth member of the Secret Six is Spider-Man, and he has to join them to fight this character, to fight this Doctor Strange character so that they can go back to their respective universes. Um, the other theory is that maybe the sixth member is uh, Venom because of, you know, the most recent Venom movie. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Um, it it feels like... This actually, to me, feels like Captain America Civil War, Captain America 3. Everybody's, you know, they're like, oh my God, the Captain America trilogy is so good. It's not a trilogy because we've only got Captain America 1, Captain America 2, and then we got like Avengers 2.5 or whatever it was because Civil War was not a Captain America movie ultimately. And I feel like that's what we're getting with the Spider-Man movie. It's a transition movie into what they wanted to do with the multiverse with Doctor Strange, but this movie is coming out first. So this is going to, it's a, it's high profile, right? It's different than WandaVision. Um, it, it's going to get more eyes on it. So they're like, okay, let's use this as a way to wrap up the previous phase, but also to kick off the news phase, the new phase, which, what didn't that also happen with like the other Spider-Man movies too? So anyway, um, yeah, so that's that. And then finally, the, the trailer that I really was like, yes, finally it came out whenever it did. The third season, the final season for Lost in Space. Another trailer that seemed like it had a ton of action, a lot of big moments, a lot of sci-fi visuals that maybe they pulled from Interstellar or elsewhere. Um, I'm hoping that along with all of that sci-fi stuff that they get to what I really like, which is you know, that they, they almost educate their viewers as they're doing this movie. Like, let's not forget the educational side of things, the, the explanation, you know, the family learns, we learn as viewers. I hope they don't forget that. We're getting the big story of the robots, of their connection with Will Robinson, etc. Um, I hope they keep the family drama going. And of course, through all of it, I'm going, okay, where is she? Where is she? Where is she? And then at the end, there she is. Parker Posey is back, thankfully. We knew that was going to happen, right? Um, so glad she's back. And I'm excited. And this will be out in December, so I don't have much more to wait. So I don't know if I'm going to watch it all again. I've already seen it at least two or three times. Definitely twice, maybe three times all the way through. I love the series, so I am looking forward to it. Yes, so Lost in Space, Lost in Space 3. Can't wait. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? 
So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics for Books Shipping. The week of November 17th, although Diamond apparently, again, had some kind of ransomware attack. So books were shipping late this week, and sometimes even the list wasn't even up when it usual, usually was up. So, yeah, Diamond, you know, nev- not recovering <laughs> from the pandemic very well. A handful of recommendations, starting off with Fantastic Four Anniversary Tribute One-Shot where they are taking a bunch of creators and reinterpreting Fantastic Four Issue 1 and Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. And this is for $6.99. And I can remember way back, I think it was during CGS, where we were talking about how cool would it be for a creative team to take the original scripts, if there even was such a thing, of like Fantastic Four number one, I believe we used this as an example, and recreate it just from the script. Like, how would they do it? And I I know that would be hard to do because most people are so familiar with that first issue, or at least the Fantastic Four in general. But this seems like either they stole our our idea, (laughs) um, or, you know, it just, it feels like a, a fun... Uh, tribute book. So I'm looking forward to that. From Image Comics, we have the Labyrinth hardcover for $39.99 by Simon Stalenhag, a tense dark tale of ruin and vengeance set among a sci-fi apocalypse like you've never seen before. An eight-wheeled vehicle trundles across a barren landscape of ash and ruined buildings towards a lone bunker deep in the wilderness. Inside the vehicle are three passengers, two scientists who plan to use the outpost as a home base for the study of world-ending phenomena, and a boy named Charlie. As the work unfolds, the isolation and claustrophobia of the compound threatens each member of the expedition with madness, forced to confront their own dark history and the struggles of the haves and have-nots, the members of the expedition find themselves hurtling towards ruin. Just flipping through some of the artwork and some of the preview pages, uh, it it seemed like something I would want to read, so I I wanted to share that. And then the rest are from DC. We have uh, Robins, One of Six by Tim Seeley, uh, Baltimore Rivas. This was the winner of the DC's Round Robin Tournament. Uh, It is a miniseries where the five heroes that have been Robin... Uh, find themselves at a crossroads in their lives. So we have Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Stephanie Brown, and Damian Wayne coming together to discuss the big things that bind them together. Mainly, was being Robin and Batman's sidekick the best choice they could have made? But before they can get to the heart of the matter, they're ambushed by an unknown assailant with a bone to pick with them. She claims to have been the first Robin, and she's out to prove Robin should have never trained any of them. $3.99. We have Wonder Woman Evolution 1 of 8. How rare is it to get a Wonder Woman-centric miniseries like this? Uh, $3.99, written by Stephanie Phillips, art by Mike Hawthorne. Whisked away from Earth by a distant cosmic entity, Wonder Woman is forced to navigate a series of perilous challenges 
that push her to the brink both mentally and physically. At stake is the fate of all humanity, with the alien entities causing Diana, uh, casting Diana as Earth's proxy for a trial judging humankind's worthiness to exist in the universe. Can Diana stand trial to save humanity without losing her own? Uh, yeah, really looking forward to reading this. Um, because again, whenever we get like a, a third Wonder Woman title or miniseries or anything that's um, Wonder Woman focused, I try to support it because, you know, as one of the Trinity, she doesn't get much uh, in the way of coverage like this. So looking forward to that. And then also the collection, the hardcover collection for Other History of the DC Universe by John Ridley, Giuseppe Camancoli, Andrea Cucci. Um, this collects issues one through five of the black label oversized Other History of the DC Universe, taking a look at uh, the DC Universe through the prism of several generations worth of superheroes who come from historically disenchanted disenfranchised groups so we have the point of view focus of black lightning and guardian and bumblebee and katana and renee montoya and others um says here you may think you know the history of the dc universe but the truth is far more complex really need to do a deep dive on this because it looks great and then i do have one more it is not from dc it is from titan it is the Star Trek Explorer magazine that I did pre-order for $9.99. It's basically just their official magazine for Star Trek, everything Star Trek. You know, there's an article on Kirk. There's an article on Discovery. Um, there's there's exclusive Star Trek fiction. So I don't, I'm not a magazine buyer, but I just picked up this first one just to see what it's like. So Star Trek, the Explorer magazine, check it out. And that's it. That's it for your recommendations for this week. Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. Forcing us to record these reviews as a podcast called The Tomb of Ideas. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Call the authorities. Anyone. Tell them we can be found at... Now, now, boys, let's not give too much away. You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group. See you there, Tomb Believers. <laughs> Today, November 18th, is Alan Moore's birthday. He is 68 years old. And I wanted something uh, to celebrate that occasion, to, to honor the snake god. <laughs> um, and uh, I was like, well, you know, I've al I already did some Alan Moore trivia. 
Um, so I can't do that again. And I've played some clips, you know, with Alan Moore for V, v for Vendetta. So I thought, okay, you know, I, I could have done a list of like, you know, what, what are all the, what are the earliest Alan Moore comics that I ever read? But I picked up Swamp Thing number 20. You know, I was there for Alan Moore's first quote unquote American issue uh, when he took over the Swamp Thing book one issue before the anatomy lesson. That seems to be a thing for some people. They, they think Anatomy Lesson was the first Swamp Thing comic that he wrote, which was issue 21, but it's not. It's issue 20, entitled Loose Ends, and it's Alan Moore wrapping up everything that had happened prior to, uh, or, or prior to him taking over, and then the next issue, Anatomy Lesson, kicks off things. He, he, he basically, you know, kills Swamp Thing in 20, and that's where we get Anatomy Lesson in 21, and we get a whole new take on the Swamp God. Um, so I, I, I was looking at issue 20 and I was like, oh, I could do a, you know, like a dramatic reading. And I was like, nah, there's too much, too much nuts and bolts. I would have to, you know, work with my voice and I just didn't have the time. So what I did do was I found on YouTube, of course, because YouTube has everything, a series of videos from DC themselves, um, talking with Alan Moore, taking over Swamp Thing. Uh, there's, there's. Uh, clips of Len Wein, there's clips of Karen Berger, um, and it's just Alan Moore talking about, first of all, talking about American comics, talking about horror, what horror has changed into at that point, and it's a very young Alan Moore, um, as Mr. Phil says, you know, it's it's nice to see Alan Moore talking about comics when he was actually excited about comics before they defeated him, um, or brought him down. So I'm just going to play like a series of, of just short little clips here from that long interview. It's about five parts. It's probably about 20, 30 minutes long. I'm not going to play everything, but just some of Alan Moore's thoughts on Swamp Thing and maybe some other things as well in honor of his birthday and in honor of the very first comic I ever read from Alan Moore. So here you go. The Swamp Thing was created in 1972 by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. Now there's a new incarnation of the Swamp Thing by artists Stephen Bissett and John Tottleman and writer Alan Moore. It's one of DC's fastest-growing fan favorites. Well, I tend to think that uh, the horror that existed in the 40s with the Universal films, uh, it's played out. It's a different audience now. I mean, what frightens people these days is not the idea of a werewolf jumping out at them. Uh, it's the, the idea of a nuclear war or any of the sort of the things that we have coursing through our society at the moment you know and i think that to really frighten people you have to somehow ground the horror in their own experience things that they're frightened of i mean in a recent swamp thing i managed to touch upon uh, bug fear you know because everybody's frightened of bugs you know it doesn't matter how big and tough they are you know you get a big enough spider and so everybody backs away from it so um I suppose it's a bit cynical and manipulating, but I do like to try and put my finger upon the exact nerve, if possible, of what really scares people. It's sort of, it's sadism and I'm getting paid for it. You know. What I'm trying to do is to get into a character who's uh, almost an elemental force. Swamp Thing's intelligence is not human. Uh, he experiences what's going on in the soil and the plant life around him. He knows where the insects are laying their eggs, he knows, you know, where the fish are spawning and sort of stuff like that. He's got the whole swamp inside his mind, he's connected to it. And that 
perspective. It's, it's an alien intelligence. He sees things differently to human beings. His values are different. And he's, he's like an earth spirit. He's a, a very primal character, uh, a very pagan character. And that's the way I've been trying to sort of interpret him, that his, his thought processes are very slow and geologic. But um, that, yeah, he has got this sort of empathy with the earth and the plant life and the bugs and the birds. And it just gives a different perspective. It's a very interesting, well, to me anyway, it's a very interesting perspective to write about, to sort of try and get the reader involved in an utterly alien experience, to sort of drag them into something that they've not experienced before, to get them to see through the eyes of this vegetable, you know, to, to see what the world's like from the, uh, the point of view of its plant life. Well, I think that, for one thing, we have to break out of the current ghetto that comics are in, in that comics have been wooing a fairly small audience of fans, because those fans are regular readers, they'll buy the book month after month, they can be depended upon. Now, that's good in terms of short-term short -term sales, but in the long term, it means that your audience is shrinking and just getting smaller and smaller as you appeal to a a more select and specialised minority. What we need to do is to get people who've not read comics before. Uh, I did hear from Steve Bissett that on one of the panels that he'd been sort of talking on, talking to some of the fans, that there were a lot of Swamp Thing fans who were coming to the book, not from comics, but from Stephen King and Peter Straub. And if we can get that sort of readership, if we can grab um, a part of that adult readership that reads proper respectable books, then I think we'll, we'll be home and dry. I mean, another thing that I would like to see is more women reading comics, because uh, there's a whole vast audience out there who just won't touch a comic book, and I can understand why they won't touch it, because there's really nothing in comics to attract a woman, because it's mainly boys' power fantasies, you know, which, I'm, is, as a boy, I mean, I enjoy them as much as anybody else, but I can see that uh, for women, there's something lacking, and I think DC are starting to move in that direction. They're planning to sort of do things that perhaps will dra drag in the women readers. And I think that would be a, that would be a big step forward. Oh, you're, you're right. I think that the horror genre, while it was popular about 10 years ago, uh, in comics at least, I think that Swamp Thing is the only surviving book in the horror field. Now, I find that strange because as comics have, horror comics have lost their popularity, then horror itself seems to have permeated every other art form to excess, um, the film industry uh, is a whole string of murdered teenagers. You know, I mean, just all these sort of chop them up films. You know, I mean, that is, that's not the sort of horror that I like to do, but it is horror. And it seems that people are really crying out for that stuff. Uh, I don't know why, you know, when, when things are so miserable anyway, why they should sort of want something that makes them feel even more depressed, but then that's people for you. You know, I think that, uh, for my part, what you have to do is do horror that actually scares people. Because in comics, I think that a lot, you have people going through the motions. Um, you'll get a funny comic book that is not actually funny. Uh, you'll recognize that it's a funny comic book because it's got characters with big noses and big feet. But you could never in a million years laugh at it. And you'll get horror comic books which, uh, although they've got werewolves and vampires and things that go bump in the night in them, then they don't really raise your hackles very much. You know, I think that with Swamp Thing, we have tried to do a book which will actually scare its readership, you know, and, yeah, it seems that it's working.
Feedback Friday. Again, jumping uh, ahead of when I'm normally going to do Feedback Friday because I got an email from John Grigas in response to the top five comics to read again for the first time. John says, I hope you get a lot of responses to these since it's fun to hear the different thoughts and opinions. So I'm going to take the time to read John's response and, and John's list. And uh, we start with, John would love to read Detective Comics 475 again. This changed my relationship with comics forever. It was my first time seeing Marshall Rogers art as well as the first time I saw the Joker as a truly evil villain and not the Cesar Romero TV version. Rogers was instantly my favorite artist ever, and I angled to see him at the Chicago Comic-Con in 78, and my 12-year-old self was titillated to watch him sketch a nude silver St. Cloud clinging to Batman's thigh, kind of like those Frazetta Conan covers. Second on his list, Dennis the Menace 140. This is the issue where he visited the Winchester house. I read it about 700 times on a family vacation in 1975, so it left an indelible impression. My wife found it and gave it to me for Christmas a few years ago, and it's every bit as good as I remember. Plus, full of those mega novelty ads where you could send away for magic finger choppers, pellet firing pistols, and trick foaming sugar. Number three. Green Lantern Rebirth number one, my first comic that was created post-1990. It was clear that the storytelling moved into a new place. I hadn't known that Hal Jordan was gone, and this series hooked me back into following these characters. Number four, ElfQuest number one. Bought this on a whim when it first came out. It might have been at a record store. A fantasy story that was more about interpersonal relationships than it was about action. And then finally, Detective Comics 854, introducing Batwoman as the featured character. It's the first time I really noticed J.H. Williams' art, and I was riveted. So incredible, it would be worth picking up even if it never got lettered. So there are John's picks. The interesting thing about that is uh, I've only read two of those stories. Although I might have read Detective Comics 475. I just, I'm not remembering. Um, But no, I've never read an ElfQuest story. So uh, that's great. That's a great list, John. And it's exactly, you know, the point of the top five. And I'm sure we could do top 10, top 25, you know, that list of those comics I wish I could read again for whatever reason. So really appreciate your email, John. Uh, Thank you so much for responding. That wraps us up here at the Daily Rios uh, for the Daily Rios Digest for this week. Uh, You can email me, Peter, at thedailyrios.com. By all means, send me your comments, send me your promos, send me your feedback, your talkback, whatever. Go visit the website, The Daily Rios. Go visit the Daily Rios Instagram. My Twitter is Peter J. Rios. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 532, the 20th Digest for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. Talk to you soon. 1092 divided by three. 364. That's what we're looking for. Three ball players, three ball players whose average OBP is... 364. Wait a minute, that doesn't look right. That didn't come out right. That's right, Artie. Billy, you gotta carry the one, right? Billy, that's just down. Yeah. Who's that? That's Pete.
Does Pete really need to be here? Yes, he does. <laughs>